Empires aren't, aren't built around people, they're built around Christ because fleshly empires will fail. So the church has to be about something much bigger than one person, right? It's got to be about Christ. Successful leaders and ministers know that, and Christians who want to live with conviction know that, and they are dedicated to that task, to preserve the lineage that has been passed down to them to the next generation. Faithful promises of God. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I want you to take your Bibles this evening and be turning with me in the Old Testament to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. This evening, I want to uh, begin a series in the book of Joshua, and I understand that we don't meet every Sunday evening, but for the Sunday evenings that we do meet together for the next several, maybe the next year or whatever the Lord may have, I want to walk with you through the book of Joshua. And I'll begin by saying this, throughout the history of God's people, one of the most fundamental practices, enabling God's people to be what we could call durable and viable and relevant, is the custom of passing the mantle of leadership or passing the baton to the next leader standing in line. This is a custom that uh, the church should observe. It is a custom that any successful institution or organization will observe for the longevity of that particular organization. In my teenage years, I competed in track and field, and one of the events I participated in was the 4x3 relay. If you're not familiar with that, it's just a group of four guys that each run 300 meters apiece, and you pass a baton off, and you compete against other schools that have other teams of four, and you obviously try to win first place. It was an exhilarating feeling to receive that baton and to begin that 300-meter trek around the track and to even hear your parents yelling for you and other people who are rooting for your school. But it was also very nerve-wracking because if you were on a 4x3 relay, you didn't want to do anything that would jeopardize your team from losing, like fumbling the baton or tripping and embarrassing yourself. And my responsibility was to be the third leg of the 4 by 3 relay, which meant that I had to get fast uh, to the point where I could pass the baton off so that the fourth leg, that was the anchor man, could be ahead of all the other runners as he ran his 300 meters to cross the finish line. I uh, think that I understand how Moses may have felt, because Moses didn't get a chance to cross into the promised land. I always wanted to run the last leg to sort of feel the glory of crossing the finish line with the cheers of the crowd, but in practice, we would actually compete against one another, and so it was always the fastest guy in practice the coach would select to be the anchor man, to be the fourth leg, and uh, I was always, when we competed, I was always the fastest, the first 200 meters, no one was even close, but Joe Foreman would always catch me in the last 100 meters. And I still remember in my yearbook, Joe Foreman riding to Andrew, the fastest third leg of our relay team. I was not flattered, and it still bothers me to this day, because I never qualified for that anchor position. Well, Moses was disqualified to be the leader that crossed with Israel into the promised land, and instead Joshua was selected as the anchor man for Israel's crossing. Moses' responsibility was to pass the baton of leadership to Joshua. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of this book. In fact, the book begins with a funeral, verse 1, after the death of Moses. This is when God is going to lead his people into the promised land. But the end of Joshua also ends on a note of a funeral, that of Joshua in verse 29, sort of leaving things hanging because Joshua 
dies and who is going to be the next leader of Israel. This is because one of the central messages of the book is bigger than either Moses or Joshua. You have to understand that. Moses may die, Joshua may die, but God's promises live on because they are generational. God's promises don't end in death. And so the book of Joshua presents the passing of eras and yet the endurance of God's promises because God's faithfulness is not anchored to one man. Even great men like Joshua and Moses, God's promises don't pass when God's people pass away. And even throughout history, this is true, it was Theodore Beza that took over for John Calvin and it was John Calvin that took over for William Farrell to be the preacher in Geneva at St. Peter's. In our own day, One of my former professors, Dr. Um, Derek Thomas, succeeded Dr. Sinclair Ferguson at the uh, historic First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina. And when that took place, in order to communicate their desire for a seamless transition and, and the passing of the baton of leadership, as it were, Sinclair Ferguson's last sermon was entitled, This is Not the End conveying the fact that the ministry of the word would continue with another man. And Derek Thomas's first sermon was entitled, This is Not the Beginning, conveying his recognition that as before, God's word would remain the focus of the people of God as they look to the promises of God. To be sure, Joshua is a book about the faithfulness of God's covenantal promises throughout the ages and man's attendant responsibility to trust those promises and faithfully pass on the baton of leadership generationally. If you skip with me all the way to uh, Joshua chapter 21 for a moment, I want to point out to you the theme verse. It's verse 45 of the entire book. Joshua 21:45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass. That is the message of Joshua. And that theme of the endurance of God's promises comes out even in chapter 1, where God commands Joshua to cross over. Verse 2, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people. He commands it. He also predicts it. Verse 11, you are to pass over this Jordan. And there's not only the command and the prediction, but there's even the pressure. Verse 14, all the men of valor among you shall pass over. You know what the implication is? You are not a man of valor if you don't pass over. You are not a man of strength. That is the pressure of God to trust his promises. The whole outline of the book has to do with the taking of the promised land. And here's how you can outline it. Chapters 1 through 4 speak about the entering into the promised land. They're entering into the promised land. Chapters 5 through 12, taking the promised land. Chapters 13 through 21, possessing the promised land. And then chapters 22 through 24, retaining the promised land. Now, our English Bibles uh, traditionally place the book of Joshua in the section of history. It's considered an historical book, but interestingly, the Hebrew Bible considers Joshua as a prophetic book, and I actually like that classification because Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.19 that, that all of Scripture is prophetic. Peter calls the Bible the prophetic word, and when you think about history, even secular history always has a biased agenda, but Scripture is the only infallible, really the only truly historic, historical book ever written. But it's not merely an historical book with bare facts, with meaningless lists of dates and irrelevant data. It is a prophetic message conveying both theological and practical truths. And right here at the beginning, you just need to understand that all of these literal land promises to the nation of ethnic Israel were never intended to end there. There is a spiritual application to the promised land. There is a sense in which we are in the promised land. We are the Israel of God. We have entered the new covenant. And we are waiting for Jesus, our King, to return where we will inhabit and possess the whole world for His glory. And so the events of Joshua are highly selected. Joshua is covering roughly 20 years. And according to conservative scholars, If the Exodus took place in about the year 1446 B.C. and the wandering in the wilderness ended in 1406 B.C., then the events of Joshua take place around 1406 B.C. to about 1386 B.C. 
Of course, there has been archaeological discoveries, site excavations. There's been the discovery of the Tel El Armana letters, which essentially was correspondence between civil magistrates of Canaanite cities that were talking to the upper echelon of the politicians in the empire of Egypt, and they sort of gave their perspective of what it was like to be conquered by the Israelites. Israel's obedience in conquering this land, which is historically attested to, under Joshua's leadership, to inherit the the promises that Yahweh points to, is the theme of this book. But it points us to the fact that Joshua is a type of Jesus. In fact, the name Joshua literally means Jehovah saves. And when you read Hebrews chapter 2, you read that it is Jesus who brings the church into glory, into the glory land, leading many sons to glory. And therefore, if you're going to properly understand the inheritance of the promised land, you must understand that there is a spiritual rest for the people of God. That rest is a rest that applies to Christians today. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author speaks about this. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The author of Hebrews is telling us that Joshua was also writing to us about the fact that God gives us the inheritance of Christ. And in a sense... We are experiencing Sabbath rest. I hope you understand the Sabbath is about far more than one day of the week. If you view it as just one day of the week, that is a legalistic perspective. There is an eternal Sabbath rest that is only found in Christ. The book of Joshua points us to that. And just as Israel fought the world and the flesh and the devil and her Canaanite foes, so too the church is to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. The church is to wage warfare against the culture for the sake of the kingdom of God. So the book of Joshua is about God's people collectively. But it begins with an individual leader who serves as a model of leadership, really a, a model of lifetime faithfulness, a brilliant soldier, an honest man, a detailed strategist, But in reality, most of us know very little about Joshua. I think that might be why God had Joshua write a book. It would be easy for us to overlook Joshua. This was a man who had great challenges ahead of him. Who wants to follow an influential leader, much less a leader like Moses, the one that delivered them from Egyptian bondage? And if God hadn't chosen Joshua to lead Israel, the people certainly wouldn't have selected him because you remember when he was a young punk back at about the age of 19 or 20, he wanted to conquer the land and no one else wanted to. The elders said no. They didn't want to follow Joshua's leadership. They would have never made him a leader if Moses hadn't have done it. But Joshua, of course, was right. The people were wrong and God made that clear. But my point is that Joshua is a forgotten person because there wasn't really anything fascinating about him. One commentator says Joshua was a brilliant soldier, one of the most extraordinary military commanders of all time, but he was not an exciting person as far as we can tell. He was a rather straightforward man who was chiefly concerned with carrying out his divine commission to the letter. He had no great sins. He made very few mistakes. In short, he was not the kind of person who would make a good hero for a novel, yet he was eminently God's man. He was a faithful man, careful to obey God's law to the letter, directing the conquest of the promised land over a seven-year period, leading God's people in vows of covenantal um, renewal at 90 years old encouraging the next generation not to drop the baton of faithfulness he was marked by a lifetime of faithful service to the lord one bible commentator says and i agree with him and i quote i've become convinced that this is a message very much needed in our time we do not have many who without trying to be novel or spectacular determined to obey the law of god in every particular and then actually do obey it throughout a long lifetime of faithful service. That's Joshua. But the book is about more than Joshua, isn't it? 
It's about the people of God, and yet God honors Joshua. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and not one of those books is called the book of Moses. Joshua is the first book in the Bible that is named after its author as a commemoration to Joshua's faithfulness. His success as a stalwart leader, understand this, has less to do with his military discipline and skill, great as it was. Joshua reminds us that true greatness is found in duty. That is, putting one foot in front of the next and dedicated obedience to God during the duration of one's entire life. And let me tell you, that is very difficult to do. And you know how I know that's difficult to do? Because there are very few people that do that. Even Christians. Joshua is therefore a model. He's a model of a lifetime of endurance. And he's also a model of leadership. What do you want to find in a leader? You want to find a man like Joshua. Any honest reader will consider Joshua's life as a success story in the eyes of God. And that's seen in this opening chapter. Tonight, I want you to look with me at three simple things about Joshua. I want us to consider the commission of Joshua's leadership, verses 1 through 9, the command of Joshua's leadership, verses 10 through 15, and the confirmation of Joshua's leadership, verses 16 through 18. Notice with me, number one, the commission of Joshua's leadership in verses 1 through 9. The Lord commissions Joshua to replace Moses due to several factors. And the first factor is that Joshua had a God-given patience. We read here in verse 1 that after the death of Moses the servant of the Lord, that the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, his assistant, and then he gives him some instructions. He was Moses' assistant. Now Moses is referred to as the servant of the Lord in verse 1. The servant is dead. Verse 2. No man is indispensable. God uses us, but he doesn't need us, so he raises Joshua up. Verse 2, now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. You remember back in Numbers 27, we won't go there, but Moses had disqualified himself from leading Israel into the promised land because of his sin in the wilderness of Zin. And following this in Numbers 27, God commanded Moses to commission Joshua through a laying on of hands ceremony. In fact, I said we wouldn't turn there, but just turn back to Joshua or Numbers chapter 27 just for a moment. Verse 18, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. Lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest, all the congregation. You shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And verse 23 says, And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So before Moses died, Moses himself, by the word of the Lord, commissions Joshua. Moses' time is up. And now in Joshua 1 we read that Moses is dead. Moses is all used up. And so now that commission is being activated. The time of preparation is over. The commission now needs to be fulfilled. And obviously Joshua had to have great patience in this process. There's not one instance in Scripture that says Joshua complained he wasn't being used. There's not one scripture that says he criticized Moses for being an old man, not knowing how to lead God's people. No, Joshua didn't try to foment some rebellion. He was patient. And I'll tell you, many Christians can be gifted and competent, but they will never become great leaders because they don't have patience. They, they think that a position in leadership uh, is a privilege that is owed to them because of their age or their intellect or their money or their influence. But I want to tell you that patience is a virtue. And patience builds credibility for others to follow you. There is nothing noble about fomenting a revolution in a business or a sports team or a church for that matter. And someone who does that lacks the necessary patience required in being a leader. They've just proven they aren't qualified to be a leader. How can an impatient man be a leader when leadership is all about patience? It's about waiting on the promises of God. It's about waiting on the people of God. It requires great patience to be a leader because you have to put up with people. You have to put up with their struggles and their neediness and their fears and their complaints and their criticisms. And so I think Joshua had a God-given patience and that's why God commissioned him. But Joshua also had a God-given presence. 
Notice verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, Joshua, just as I promised to Moses. Verse 4, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. There's the presence of God. I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 6, be strong and courageous, for you shall shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. God promises that Joshua is going to be on the receiving end of all the promises that date all the way back to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham standing in the land of Canaan and God says, as far as the eye can see, this is yours. Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 is told by God that it would be an everlasting possession, which again clues us into the fact that God wasn't just talking about literal land. It is an everlasting possession. He was pointing forward to the possession and the inheritance that we would have in Christ and Christ's conquering of the world. I think it's obvious that when God gave Joshua these orders, that Joshua was wishing Moses would rise again from the dead. I mean, Joshua was his assistant. He was just the helper. But now he's in charge. And I think reality would have set in really quick, especially when you read in verse 4, the, the vast tract of land, Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea. I mean, from sea to sea, everything is going to be yours, your responsibility. And Joshua must have been overwhelmed. Wouldn't you be? Because God constantly encourages him. Notice again verse 5. No man, God says, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. I mean, three times Joshua is told, be strong and courageous. Verse 6. Verse 7. Be strong and courageous. Again in verse 9. Be strong and courageous. I mean, knowing that God was on Joshua's side would be able to get him through this. It makes all the difference in the world. And quoting Hebrews again, in Hebrews chapter 13, it quotes what Joshua has said to him by God in Joshua chapter 1. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That is taken from Joshua chapter 1. A promise repeated for us. What is the solution for contentment? Or we could say patience. Well, it's this. God is with you however he uses you. God is with you whatever trial you go through. God is with you whatever temptation you face. The same presence of God that was with Moses that led him to confront Pharaoh, and that led him to convince Israel that he was hearing things from God? I mean, go try to sell that. That's a pretty hard sell. The presence of God was with Moses, and now the presence of God is with Joshua, and Hebrews 13 says that God's presence is with you. It is with us. Calvin says in his commentary that this promise calms down all anxieties and suppresses all excessive fears. So Joshua didn't have Moses anymore, but he had God, and that was much better. This is not the end of God's promises because of Moses' death, and this isn't the beginning of God's promises. This is the culmination of everything God pointed Abraham to, the inheritance of the promised land. And I just want you to know tonight that God is with you all the time, everywhere you go, at home, at school, at work, whatever He has called you to do, He will equip you, He will be with you, He will help you be faithful. And we have that promise through the blessed Holy Spirit that indwells us. So God commissions Joshua And his effectiveness is seen in the fact that he had a God-given patience, he had a God-given presence, but he also had a God-given persistence. And we see this in verses 7 through 9. Joshua must be bold in his person, but such could only happen if he was persistent in the word of God. Notice verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. We'll just stop right there for a moment. This might be strange for an army general to be a student of the word of God, but not if you want to be prosperous. 
Because the rest of verse 7 says, Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. The word meditate is the Hebrew word mutter. It's connected with the phrase book of the law there in verse 8. And putting that together, the idea is that the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. It literally means you shall mutter God's word to yourself. You should know it inside and outside and remember it and obey it. And this wasn't just some pursuit of knowledge. Verse 7, be careful to do according to the law of God. Verse 8, meditate so that you may be careful. There it is again, to do according to all that is written in it. And then notice verse 9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. The third time he's told him that, Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Verse 9 is about persistence in the word. It's expected. Joshua, have I not just commanded you? I told you I will be with you wherever you go. And what is the result of this meditation, this intense study? It's that Joshua wouldn't deviate to the right or to the left. He would stay on the straight path of Scripture. He would be careful to do all that is written in the Word of God so that at the end of verse 7, he would be successful. He would be prosperous. You know, Christians should not be afraid for seeking a level of earthly prosperity and success. The health wealth gospel is obviously false. There's nothing here about financial success, but don't you want to be successful in your vocation? Don't you want to be successful in the world's eyes so that you have a a bigger platform to be a witness for Christ? Here, God is commanding, Joshua, your job is to be a military commander. Here's how you will be successful. Meditate on the Word of God. Live according to the Word of God, and God will bless you. I mean, how can we truly live for Him apart from meditating on His Word? One commentator says, We live in an age of superficiality and spoon-feeding. Consequently, many of today's Christians think that all a person has to do to be successful in the Christian life is go to church, pay passing attention to the sermon, have a few Christian friends, and go on about their business as one would without these other elements. He says, This is why Christians make very little difference in society. They think like the world, and thus they act like the world. What is missing? A deep, genuine, and persistent meditation of the Word of God. We live in a fast-paced, Google-search society, and people think that they can live their Christian life that way. But you can't get quick answers to theology by Google searches. An understanding of Scripture takes a lifetime of study, wrestling with the text. And we live in a culture with widespread literacy, Knowledge is at our fingertips. But the question is, do we meditate on the Scriptures? Do we mutter the Scriptures to ourselves and seek to apply them? I said a couple of weeks ago that Christianity is a thinking man's religion, but let me add to that, it's also a doing man's religion. God expects us to meditate on His Word to be prosperous. Remember Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On His law, He meditates day and night. He's like a tree, the psalmist says, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. And all He does, He prospers. And then the psalmist says, the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. You see, Joshua did not view his Bible, the Bible of his day, which would have been the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as some relic tucked away in the Tabernacle Museum. No, he would have had the Scriptures copied. He would have read the Scriptures daily. He would have meditated and muttered these Scriptures to himself. That's why we read in Deuteronomy chapter 31, before Moses' death, that Moses commands Joshua, and Joshua obeys to conduct himself in a covenantal renewal ceremony with Israel where the Word of God is read publicly before the people of God for that to be the center. And what did Moses witness, or excuse me, Joshua witness in the life of Moses. You remember that Moses was the writer of the first five books of the Bible. Joshua, as the assistant of Moses, would have been with Moses all the time, that labor of writing the Scriptures. He saw in the example of Moses the value that 
Moses placed on the Word of God, to know the Word of God, to live the Word of God. So please understand me this evening. Joshua was not a military leader turned Bible student. He was a Bible student turned military leader. And Joshua's success, his secret to success and impact was his godliness. It wasn't his raw skill as a military leader. He knew and he lived God's word and God blessed him. Calvin says this, Let believers, in order that their affairs may turn out as they wish and gain the divine blessing of heaven, be diligent in learning God's word and then be faithful in obeying it. You see, impacting society, leading to God's conquering of the world with His kingdom begins with individuals doing that. So I ask you tonight, how does your meditation of Scripture impact you in the workplace? How does it make you a better employer and an employee? What about at home or among your family or the raising of your kids, your witness in the community? You see, life in the kingdom of God is lived out of the Word of God. And that is where the heavenly blessing comes. God's Word made Joshua. Joshua was a made man. And he was able to be all that he could be because of his commitment to studying the Word of God, internalizing its truths, meditation, and externalizing its truths in application. And this is why God commissioned him. You need to be all you can be as a soldier in God's army. And that begins with a commitment to truth wherever God has called you. But we need to move from the commission of Joshua's leadership, verses 1 through 9, secondly to the command of Joshua's leadership in verses 10 through 14, because leading others in the home, and the church, or in one's workplace environment is all about courage. Did you notice verse 6, verse 7, verse 9? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Why? Well, because courage attracts followers. But what is courage rooted in? First of all, an unwavering consecration. Notice the command of Joshua's leadership was marked by an unwavering consecration. Verse 10, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp, command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. I mean, it's like Joshua leaves his conversation with God and goes straight to the people. This is immediate obedience. Unwavering consecration, obedience to God. And he commands... His officers, so this is a top-down approach. He commands the officers to then command the people. And notice how everyone obeys. This is God's pattern. He has chosen leaders that are put in place to pass on God's divine commands. Leadership matters. This is why rebellion is so wicked. Verse 11 says, Every Israelite had to bear their own load of provisions. That was the command. Because within three days, camp was going to break, and Joshua says, we're going to pass over the Jordan, and we're going to possess this land. This wasn't just walking across a river, okay? This was moving a massive nation and military, and they had to fight once they got to the other side if they survived. But Joshua says, the Lord, your God, is giving you this land to possess it. So every person had their own provisions. That would have been the manna that God would have continually provided for them. There was no regular quartermaster department in this military. Once in the land, it's going to be around harvest season, and we'll see later that they're able to reap from the fields. But this is a massive undertaking, moving a large army, an entire nation. How did Joshua muster the ability to lead God's people to do this, men, women, and children? I mean, why were the people so willing to listen to move out in three days? Moses' body had just been laid in the ground. The soil was still fresh, as it were. How did he do it? He had an unwavering consecration to do exactly what God said. And because God's people knew that what he said came from God, they did it. It's that simple. God said it. Joshua commanded it. The people did it. This is the trust and obey principle. Joshua trusted God's presence would be with him, so he obeyed God, he commanded the people, and they followed because good leaders are confident. Now, there's a difference between arrogance and confidence. Confidence is humble trust in God. And leaders over time will acquire a sort of portfolio of experience that says, if I do the right thing, it doesn't matter what the consequences are because God said he would never leave me or forsake me. That is Joshua. An unwavering consecration. In fact, you know Joshua's first battlefield experience was against the Amalekites. This was a half-breed tribe um, that occupied the vast desert region between the southern borders of Palestine and 
Mount Sinai. Israel had just escaped Egypt, and they found themselves in this desert surrounded by enemies. And so Moses appointed Joshua to command the ground troops. Uh, Moses was still in charge, but he went up on a little hill, and he was able to watch the battle. And as Joshua led the troops on the ground against the Amalekites, he could see Moses' hands raised to receive the blessing of victory as he stood in faith, trusting in the promises of God. And the Bible tells us that as long as Moses' hands were raised, that the Israelites had the upper hand in battle. But when they were lowered because he was tired, it looked as if the Amalekites were going to defeat Israel. So what happened? You know the story. Aaron and Hur had Moses sit on a rock. They stood on either side and they held Moses' arms up. And they held his arms up to receive the, the victory blessing from God until sunset. And God gave them a wondrous victory. Joshua saw that. He saw Moses' raised arms. That was a lesson for Joshua. You know what the lesson was? The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle is not to the swift and mighty. Let me give you a verse. Exodus 15.3. The Bible says God is a man of war. Do you trust him to fight your own conflicts? Joshua did. And that experience that he had in looking at Moses teaches us, first of all, that leaders doing their best to trust and obey God are worth following. They're worth supporting in the fight, just as Aaron and Hur supported Moses. Secondly, it teaches us that God blesses victory whenever the leader displays brave resolution to trust God in the midst of battle. And third, it reminds us that there's no better skill for a leader than obedience. It's not charisma. It's not some super ability to be a good orator. It's obedience. It's godliness. It's unwavering consecration. Joshua remembered incidents like that, and that's why he was able to command the people, look, in three days, this is what we're going to do. You're either with us or you're not with us, but this is what we're going to do. And I should hasten to say, it would have been easy to criticize Moses for not doing enough. I mean, right, if you were Joshua, I mean, Moses, you went up there and you stood with your hands held in the air. That's not exactly appealing. You didn't even lift a hand to help in the fight. Well, first of all, Moses was an old man. And secondly, Joshua was able to see through that superficial reasoning to be able to see there is a man of God. He's standing on a hill all alone with his arms raised high, trusting that God's going to give us victory. But Joshua's ability to command, that's what we're talking about, verses 10 through 15, was not only marked by unwavering consecration, but secondly by unflinching confrontation. Notice verse 12. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. A good leader like Joshua is not only aware of the enemy on the outside, in this case the Canaanites, but he's also ever aware of the looming enemy on the inside. Good leaders don't back down from confrontation. He is confronting gently but very firmly the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he basically says there in verse 13, remember the word that Moses said. Remember what the agreement was. You say, what exactly was the agreement? Well, in Numbers chapter 32, these two and a half tribes were acting like the prodigal son. They demanded their inheritance early. And Moses, a good leader, was able to sniff this out. This was a subtle conspiracy to avoid the hard work of taking the larger lands on the west side of the Jordan. So these two and a half tribes wanted land on the east side. They wanted to settle. And Moses in Numbers 32 berates them in Jesus-like style, calling them a brood of sinful men that were attempting to increase the fierce anger of the Lord. Numbers 32 verse 14. What made this request such a big deal? Well, Moses was a good leader. He knew that their request could potentially cause division among the tribes because their request and wanting to settle on the east side and not have to go to the west side and fight said in effect 
We want our land now. We don't want to work hard. And of course, that would cause a division with the rest of the tribes. This was a selfish request. It could discourage God's people. For two and a half tribes to say, yeah, I know God promised that, but this land over here is good enough. We don't really care about you guys. We're staying over here. Now, the best of leaders are able to lead through tricky situations. And so Moses brokered a deal under the authority of God. The request was selfish, but Moses brokered a deal. And he basically said, and this is what's coming out in verses 12 through 15, that the two and a half tribes would be given land east of the Jordan, but they would have to fight alongside their brothers. They would have to cross to the western side, fight alongside of them until they conquered the land. Once it was conquered, they could go back to the eastern side and settle. This is ingenious leadership. It teaches us the importance of leaderships, doing what is necessary to preserve unity of God's people. Because without Unity, God's people can't move forward. How does an army fight without unity? It doesn't mean that God's leaders want unity at all costs, with no convictions, no standards, like a warm, fuzzy unity apart from truth. No, God's people are to guard disunity against it. Church members are not to hold revolutions, demonstrations, temper tantrums to get their own way. And leaders should not be afraid to confront that when it happens. Dr. John MacArthur told us a story when I was in school there that when he first became the pastor at Grace Community Church that something happened in the Sunday school department. I don't remember exactly what it was. But there was a huge uprising and um, Dr. MacArthur came out early Sunday morning and the entire Sunday school class, one Sunday school class, was sitting in chairs in the courtyard of the church outside of the building in protest. They were protesting whatever they didn't agree with in Sunday school. And you know what MacArthur did? He didn't walk by them. He walked to them. He confronted them and he said, you're acting like children throwing a temper tantrum. What was the result? Well, they probably all left the church, but he got rid of the problem. He got rid of the problem. Hebrews tells us to encourage one another Not discourage one another, right? Encourage each other. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders. The Bible says we're to obey our leaders, not causing them grief. So it's never justified to foment a church revolution. But where did Joshua learn to possess such unflinching confrontation? Well, he learned it from Moses. Remember, he's Moses' assistant. You remember the story when Israel received the law of God, right? In the book of Exodus. You might not remember, but the elders went up on that mountain with Moses, at least part way. They ate and drank before God, before his presence. And then Moses said, Joshua, you're coming with me a little bit further up the mountain. And Joshua went up a little bit further, and then Moses went up even further by himself to receive the law of God. When they all came back down, you know what they found below? They found sinful reveling and idolatry with a golden calf. Can you imagine the horror? You've just ate and drank in God's presence above and you come below and see that kind of junk taking place among the people of God? I think Joshua learned that day from Moses the importance of confronting sin. Good leaders yearn for holiness. They pursue holiness for the the sake of themselves and for those they are leading. And so Joshua commands and confronts. But leadership is not easy. It takes courage to fight inside enemies in order to be strong enough to face the outside enemies. But courage attracts followers. And this courage is rooted in unwavering consecration or obedience, unflinching confrontation. And let me just give you one more unaccommodating conviction. This isn't actually in the text, but I'll just tell this story. As a young man, Joshua nurtured conviction, taking God at his word. And I mentioned it earlier They were on the brink of overtaking the promised land. And you remember they sent spies into the land. They sent 12 spies into the land. Joshua and Caleb were part of that group. They came back and they reported this is a land flowing with milk and honey, just like God said. They brought back clusters of grapes to say, look at the size of these things. But then they came back with a bad report, 10 of them. They said, we can't attack. We can't do this. And Joshua and Caleb said, no, we can. God told us to. We must. And and, and they said, but but there are giants. And Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, but 
God is a giant. He's on our side. And they said, but we're like grasshoppers. And Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, something like, but God could crush them. And in fact, Joshua and Caleb rent their clothes and begged the elders of Israel and the people of God not to rebel this way. But the people of God did. That was an example of Joshua nurturing conviction. The majority report was bad. It was wrong. And as a result, Israel wandered for another 38 years in the wilderness. The majority report was wrong, but Joshua and Caleb's convictions were right. And everyone over the age of 20 died, and so now they're on the brink of crossing the promised land, and it's Joshua who stands alone with his conviction still intact. You know why? Because he was a man who stood on principle. That is always what a godly leader does. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't... Um, have some subjective standards. There's the objective word of God. That is what he follows, no matter the consequences, no matter the personality he is facing. And that's why we read what we do in verses 16 through 18. Notice your Bibles, and they answer Joshua. All that you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Wow. Just as we obeyed Moses in all the things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Isn't this commitment? We move from the commission of Joshua's leadership, and the command of Joshua's leadership, to the confirmation of Joshua's leadership. You see that? The people confirm Joshua's leadership. He's commanded them in verses 12 through 15. And now they respond. Notice verse 16. All that you've commanded, we will do. Wherever you send, we will go. Verse 17. Just as we obeyed Moses, we will obey you. And then they say, only may the Lord be with you. And then they talk back to Joshua what God told Joshua. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your words, whatever they command you, command shall be put to death. And then they say, only be strong and courageous. That's the fourth time. This time from the people to Joshua. The first three times from God to Joshua. This time from the people to Joshua. Confirming his leadership. Joshua, we are behind you. Joshua needed to hear this. You see, people follow and confirm leaders who humbly follow and obey God. It's that simple. Joshua marched forward. The people are right behind. And as another flawed yet Christian general said one time, Stonewall Jackson, duty is ours, consequences are God's. That was how Joshua led. This is what we're going to do because this is the right thing to do. You're either in or you're out. You're either coming along or you're not coming along. But this is what God's word says. And so Moses successfully passes the baton to Joshua So the book begins with the death of Moses, the passing of the baton, but it also ends with the death of Joshua. I want you to turn with me to uh, chapter 24, we're almost done, but chapter 24, and notice with me in verse 29, it says, after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. This raises a practical question. What will the second and third generation of believers do? Will another leader arise? Will the people trust the promises of God? You see, God's promises are not about any one person. We're not into building some sort of empire around the flesh. This isn't about Joshua. It's not about Moses. You do realize that The book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. You do realize that the book of Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. You do realize that the book of Joshua ends with the death of Joshua. Do you see a theme in the first few books of the Old Testament? In the first few books of the New Testament, they don't end in death. They end in resurrection. The gospel accounts tell us about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua is ultimately pointing to the fact that Yahweh saved what his name means Joshua that was Jesus's name Yeshua people die God's promises don't because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ he is our lasting enduring hope 
One of my favorite things to do when I go back to West Virginia is to visit cemeteries, and there are several family cemeteries, but one in particular that I take great interest in. It's where my mother is buried, for example, and several people close to me. Smith Family Cemetery is a wonderful place to go because all of those tombstones for me is a memorial of God's faithfulness in my life. I could never be who I am today were it not for those people, some of whom I didn't even know, many of whom I did know. Generational faithfulness that clings to God's promises no matter who the personnel consists of. We come down a great lineage and heritage of the Reformed faith. Are we going to pass that on? See, that's the mission of this church. That's the responsibility of this church. Christ Reformed Community Church. It's not Christ Reformed Amish Church. We're not secluded over here, away from everyone else. We're in the community. We're involved. It begins with the individual committed to Scripture. Empires aren't, aren't built around people. They're built around Christ because fleshly empires will fail. So the church has to be about something much bigger than one person, right? It's got to be about Christ. And successful leaders and ministers know that. And Christians who want to live with conviction know that. And they are dedicated to that task. To preserve the lineage that has been passed down to them to the next generation. The faithful promises of God. So we learn a lot about leadership in Joshua 1, but we really learn a lot about God's faithfulness through the ages, don't we? This was Joshua's legacy. This is what made him a great leader. But more importantly, this is what made Joshua a successful servant of God. And ultimately, regardless of how we participate in the kingdom of God and what role we play, we're after the glory of God, right? We're not after the glory of self. So talk about skills, talk about gifts, talk about this, talk about that. Who cares? Are you obedient? Are you faithful? Do you live with integrity? That is the essence of Scripture. It's not what you know. It's not what you know. You can have the largest library in the world. It's not about knowledge. It's about the meditation of the Scriptures. Are you muttering God's Word to yourself? Do you apply it? Do you live it? Do you live in the fear of God? Or are you just concerned what others think? So Joshua points us to the fact that we are part of this great enterprise of declaring the promises of God, trusting those promises, and then passing them on to the next generation. What a glorious privilege this is. And I look forward to walking with you the rest of the book of Joshua. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.